Welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, you have such a fascinating background that touches on so many different interesting aspects of the alt space. Everything from you've been in the fintech world, you have been in the ESG world, you're now at Adapar, so you understand the alts in a number of different ways and a bunch of key themes. We'd love to dive into all of that today, but first, we'd love to hear your background, what you're up to now at Adapar. Yeah, I split time right now between Adapar and Stanford. In both cases, I am really trying to help the world's biggest investors make smarter decisions. By that, I mean, I want to help them when they deploy capital, whether it's directly in a startup or in a fund of funds, we want them to be using data and and making the best decision possible. At Stanford, I'm now the executive director of Stanford Long-Term Investing, which is a new initiative launched within the School of Engineering and the upcoming School of Sustainability, which has a TBD as a name, but it's the first school that's been set up in 70 years. We've been asked to study this pool of $100, $120 trillion to start to figure out what could we do with this capital? How can we help this capital achieve their objectives while also solving the problems that are in the world, like solutions for climate change? At Adapar, it's a very similar gig. I'm doing research, um, really trying to build tools and insights that can help investors make smarter decisions. So in all of the stuff I'm doing, it's really about data-driven decision-making. How do you think data-driven decision-making has changed with some of the innovations in fintech, things like Adapar have created that you maybe didn't see because you've been doing this for a while? When I started coming up in this allocator world, the classic story was asset allocation drives all the value. It's like the classic Brinson paper where 92% of the value that comes out of a portfolio, as in the outperformance, is just a function of asset allocation. And then we've got 5 to 7% that's manager selection or asset selection. And the final little nub there, that's implementation. When you talk about implementation or operational alpha, people groan and they're like, ah, reconciliation, compliance, fee and cost audits. And my point is like, look, the asset allocation doesn't come out of thin air. It is built upon an operating model, which is usually powered by some combination of governance, culture, and technology. The work that I'm focused on is actually that operating model. And so whether it's Adapar or it's the research that we're doing at Stanford, it's about helping the asset owner community refine their understanding of their model so that they can improve it. And and just a quick example, You know, one of the guys here at this conference today, Jeremy here, was telling me we spent a ton of money building out our liquidity models, and now we have a world-class liquidity modeling toolkit, and our board has now let us increase our liquid exposure by 10%. So they're now holding 10% more illiquid assets. And that's the kind of story that I'm hearing time and time again. 
for example, a plan in London telling me, oh, we're using the Navigator software and the Navigator software has allowed us to have high confidence in our cash and our unfunded commitments. So we're putting another hundred million in markets. That's the really cool thing about this, the, the tech. It's actually allowing foundational pieces to change. So you bring up a really interesting point, which is that data is driving different asset allocation decisions. Now, we're in a world where the portfolio of the future is going to look a lot different than the portfolio of the past. Many people have said we're getting away from 60-40, and there's a number of reasons why. How much do you think asset allocation decisions and this new paradigm for portfolio construction is down to things like what you said, data-driven decision-making and the technology that's enabling people to have better information to make asset allocation decisions, or things like what's going on in markets, low interest rates environments, inflation, the advent of technology like Adapar that's enabling and unlocking access to asset classes that other investors, the retail investor, hasn't had access to like alts. I think what you're calling out is we're at this tipping point where the world of finance and investment has operated in what I would describe as a process-based decision-making model for about 150 years, probably all time. We don't quite trust the information and data that we have. And so we create committees of people and those people use their experience, their knowledge, their education to make sense of a very messy data set in order to set asset allocation, to invest in managers, to size deals. But I'm telling you that data is starting to get cleaner and more reliable. And we're getting ready as an industry to have more confidence in that data in the way that you see hedge funds building algorithmic trading, which starts with data provenance, data cleaning, models, and execution. The whole world of institutional investments will start to say, okay, we understand our data. We can build reliable models. And the people will plug in there, but they won't have the same hegemony over that process. Mm -hmm. Because the data will drive the truth rather than the individual allocator's decision. Yeah, you'll, you'll actually have faith that, that what your custodial data is telling you is true. Today, I don't think anybody trusts the data they're looking at as being like 100% reliable, especially in the alternative space. So on that point, how do you think about the application of data, both for some of the world's largest institutional investors, where if capital were directed into different asset classes, whether it be private equity venture, the ESG world or climate change, or even crypto, how does it impact them? And then also on the other side of the spectrum, how is all this data impacting the reallocation or redistribution of capital on the retail side? Yeah. So we'll start with the comment around ESG. In my mind, ESG is just alternative data. So it's non-conventional data that when properly integrated into a decision should provide an investor a much richer understanding of what they own. You, you flip the, the toggle and you go from uh, value at risk and volatility, and now you're looking at climate risk and transition risk and physical risk. That's the value that ESG, I think, brings, but it needs to be joined up in a much more holistic data toolkit. Right now, it all feels disparate. And so people start looking at ESG more as like a compliance function. Like, can I invest in this? Yes or no. Or a proxy voting function rather than a true alternative data insight function. So that's the first thing. 
on the crypto piece, I think we're going to need to see new capabilities. We see a lot of asset owners saying, yeah, like we got some exposure. We're too afraid to do it directly because we don't have the capability to set up a safe in the back office and stick our cold storage in the safe and put a guy with a machine gun in front of it. So they're using the outside managers to to manage that type of risk. Do you think a lot of investors should be doing something like crypto or even ESG for that matter too? Should they be doing that directly or should they really be outsourcing these types of things to investment managers who are the experts and let them do it and just say, look, I believe in this strategy or in this thesis, but I'm going to outsource this to managers rather than trying to do it more directly. Yeah, I think it starts with a governance assessment. Do you have the governance budget, which is do you have a board that has the capabilities, time and wherewithal to properly oversee, for example, crypto strategy? Most cases, I would say absolutely not. And so you should probably outsource it. In my experience, on most pension fund boards, we don't even have technologists, let alone crypto experts. So these are boards filled with either public servants or in some cases, finance experts, but not technologists, not people who are familiar with blockchain. That's the first point. On the ESG front, I think it is a useful toolkit to have inside your organization because it speaks to future trajectories. A lot of ESG things won't be priced for a decade, and then markets will be disrupted severely. And so you want to begin positioning your portfolio for these long horizon risks that ESG represent. So I think there, there's probably reason to do some of it in-house. Do you think investors are at the point where, whether it's what Chris Sock is doing at Lowercase or BlackRock coming out and saying, we believe that there's an investment opportunity in helping to reduce the impact of climate change, that investors are now realizing that they are doing this, not just for checking the ESG box, but because it's good business for them and their LPs to generate financial returns? Yeah, of course. This can't just be about doing right for the world. This has to be about meeting fiduciary duty and maximizing risk-adjusted returns. But remember, they have to manage risk-adjusted returns at a portfolio level. Some pension funds fall into the trap of saying, does this specific asset perform or underperform relative to its comparable without that ESG? But I would argue... If you did that across the portfolio, you would never hold U.S. treasuries. You would never hold all kinds of things that like are just obviously crappy things to hold if your only reason to hold them is that asset. But there are reasons to hold these assets to create diversification across the portfolio. And it's that that people are realizing, I want that exposure. I want that long horizon resilience in my portfolio. And in some cases, I want that alpha. If you solve climate change, you're going to make a lot of money. That's the good news. So you're seeing all of those toolkits being deployed. What do you think right now in the world is the most underappreciated investment opportunity at the intersection of doing good, but also meeting that fiduciary responsibility and generating returns for investors? I think the transition to net zero real estate and even residential real estate is a huge opportunity. If you look at the data, it shows that once you bring a, a home to net zero, it trades at a premium that actually is higher than the cost of getting the, the home to net zero. You spend $50,000 to get the home to net zero, and the house is worth $100,000 more. One, because net zero is more appealing. Two, because you've brought the energy costs down, all these different things. And so for, part of me is sitting here thinking, why the heck aren't we seeing a lot of people funding those transformations 
of real estate. That's that's fascinating. I want to ask one final question to wrap things up, which I always ask every Alco's mainstream guests, which is, what's the most interesting or your favorite alternative investment? My favorite is, I will give you a category, which is capital markets venture. I love investing in startups that are trying to change the flow of capital that I could then drop into a pension fund. If there's somebody that's like, I've got this unique analytic or I've got this unique tool to help you access, those are the types of companies that could redirect the flow of capital. And that gets me fired up. Anybody that's building a company like that out there, come talk to me. I want to help you. Well, given what you're doing and what you've done in the past, they should absolutely come and talk to you. But one final question there. What aspect of capital markets in your mind is most ripe for change in that regard? You'll be shocked to hear this, but the world's biggest investors are still relying on spreadsheets and Word documents to make decisions. So anybody that's just going and looking inside these investment organizations and taking stock of like, where do spreadsheets exist where they shouldn't? Remember, spreadsheets are useful, but they're not professional-grade tools. They're, they're error-prone. You get zombie cells that are carrying on from spreadsheet to spreadsheet. You see tons of errors. So that's one. The two is managing the network. There aren't enough buy-side network management tools. The network management tools for the buy-side are like repurposed sell-side tools. But we don't need to manage our sales process. We need to manage our inbound and so I want to see more companies that are managing that. There's some good ideas for young, hungry entrepreneurs for you. Okay, well, people should come talk to you, Ashby, when it comes to capital markets technology, given the purse <laughs> that you sit in at a par and what you've done as an entrepreneur. So congrats on everything you've done. Thanks so much for coming on this Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Awesome. Thanks again, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going